Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hey, everyone, and welcome to part two of my conversation with Teddy Hose. Teddy Hose grew up in the Unification Church, and the Unification Church was an organization that is still around under other names. It was started by the self-proclaimed Messiah, Sam Young Moon, and that's why it came to be known as the Moonies. They were based in Terrytown, New York, and while its membership and businesses were run worldwide, Teddy's family lived on church properties near the Moon family estate until he was 13. And eventually, his family left the church, but life around the Moons and around the organization was certainly a different life than the one that Teddy has now. Last time we talked about growing up in this way, and this time we're going to talk about how the group has become more militaristic, and especially with its offshoots, and that also at one point, Teddy remembers that the son of Sung Myung Moon, one of the sons, had committed suicide, and he wants to talk about how that was handled, how that was turned around, how that was given other meaning, and how, as he remembers it, the people in the church were made to be blamed for it. Teddy is someone who is an artist and a writer. He lives in San Francisco now. He also does stand-up comedy and cartooning and editorials, and he's spoken a lot in public recently about his growing up within a cultic system. So here's Teddy now. I remember one time going to a meeting for a particular cultic group that exists in some big cities. And also the teacher was writing a lot of things on a chalkboard at the time. Um, And it was a lot of numbers and a lot of arrows and a lot of things. And people were trying to get it and they were writing it all down. And I remember thinking, first of all, it didn't make sense, but also there was no proof of any of it. So it was sort of an equation given and then something built upon that equation, but the original equation wasn't necessarily true. So it was like this house of cards, you know, but people were taking it on as, as the truth and furiously writing things down, trying to keep in pace with the teacher. Uh, and it was about how much, uh, what a percentage of things that are real are really part of reality and which are not, and it was, uh, and I'm thinking, how would he know? And who knows, nobody knows. Uh, But based upon that, then all of these things were built upon it, and then it became this really kind of enlightened talk. And I thought, no, it was just a lot of like, I could have, you know, I could have asked a four-year-old to say, give me a bunch of numbers, you know, okay, I'll write them on the board. But because you're uh, in this position of authority, then, People listen to you, and especially if you say that you're the Messiah or, you know, you speak for God, people listen to you. So I'm wondering to to ask you just about if there were if there were times that you questioned things, even in your mind, and what that meant or how you were told to feel maybe about yourself if you didn't quite agree or if you didn't think that this was the truth. Yeah, well, I mean, when my again, when my family moved to Seattle through my teens, like. Um, and we we were pulling away from the church a little bit more. There was there was a more kind of like hardcore base. It, it was funny how like it seemed like in the east uh, east side of Seattle, like the suburbs of Seattle, there was the more kind of hippie like veteran kind of 
church members who've been there, done that. They've seen how it changed. They're more critical. So we all got together for our own Sunday service. And then Seattle proper was a little more conservative and they were kind of by the books and they had like the church, the proper church with the pews and everything. And, you know, so they were more uh, kind of keeping it real. Um, So, so it was kind of a a group thing. Like, I guess it, it, it was somewhat advantageous to have the older families live in the East side um, where, you know, they were kind of over a lot of the, the, that kind of thinking and, um, you know, uh, so, so I had, you know, I had that, uh, whereas there's still, you know, a lot of people whose parents are even in that, the sanctuary church, the one with the AR 15s that was in that A and E show that I was part of. Um, yeah, like, which is to me is so daunting and so stressful, uh, and it's just crazy making. So, uh, I, I feel lucky to have like had a group where they could all talk about it and be like, yeah, you know, don't, we don't take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. So that was my family kind of, uh, getting distance from the church. Mm-hmm. I guess I'll, I'll tell you about how, when I kind of decided that I was just done with the church. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So one of, uh, Reverend Moon's sons committed suicide in Reno, uh, when he was maybe about like, uh, 18 or 19 years old. Yeah. And I actually kind of knew this kid back in Terrytown. I saw him around town. It, it was interesting because he would always hang out in pairs with his brother, uh, Young Jin or Sean Moon, who's the leader of that like gun cult now, Sanctuary Church. So he was the obnoxious one. He was the bully. He was the guy who was like, rah, 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 and like just teasing people and just, you know, the parents couldn't do anything because he was a moon. So they just had to watch him like, you know, bully their kids, which was awful. But his brother, Young Jin, who was a little older, who committed suicide later, um, he was peaceful and he would like play D&D with the other kids. And he there, he was just mellow. He, he was more of a good natured kid. Uh, and, you know, I think maybe he had some kind of depression or something like that, that, you know, kept him that way. Uh, there was just a melancholy about him. So when he did commit suicide in Reno, um, you know, I, I remember the, the church email went out there was like a mass email that went out to members and it was like you know uh you didn't have enough faith so you did this like look look at what you guys did he killed himself because you know the japanese and the american and the you know all these other uh divisions of the church you guys all failed and uh you know sun Myung moon was was doing that that's how he coped with it and i just right there in an instant i was like wow i see what the church prioritizes and it's not us <laughs> Uh, they want power and they don't care about, you know, just a moment of silence for this, this kid, you know, it's really, it's really sad. Whereas my family was already kind of pretty much out of it. I, I held on to a lot of good childhood memories. I wasn't ready to leave it yet, but right there I was like, okay, <laughs> I get it now. I see what my parents were saying. So, right. So, wow. So a letter goes out just to go back to this letter. So a letter goes out and is blaming the people in the group for this occurring for the suicide that you weren't doing something enough whatever I mean it's always on it's always on you guys yep but you're right if you lose a child the letter that should go out should be a soft one we are mourning the loss of our wonderful son and we're so sad during this time we appreciate you know whatever well wishes you want to give us and we're sorry to have lost a member of our community and and something a little bit about him and that I mean that would be 
lovely and respectful and kind of setting the appropriate tone. But it seemed instead it was this blaming tone and angry and nothing, um, nothing soft, nothing reflective, nothing sweet, nothing kind. I'm wondering if that was also part of what you saw. Like, did you did you have other times where you thought someone was really suffering and they just were not treated with the kindness that they should have been treated with, or you know that 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 was sort of a recurring theme? Well, you know, I have to say that myself growing up in Terrytown, um, I've heard it described as like a cult described as like it's like an onion where the closer you get to the center you know, through the layers, the more intense it is. So being in Terrytown, um, you know, I, again, I was, I was really locked into it and I thought this was going to be the rest of my life. And I didn't really question anything uh, until I was 13, uh, when we moved away. So, um, I'm trying to think of any other occurrence where it just seemed unfair. I mean, I guess if anything happened to you, if you got injured, if something bad happened to you, what was the reaction? Um, well, I don't know. Uh, I, if, if the moons like hit me or something like that, I, that was just, you know, we, we completely depended on them for all of our resources, community identity, you know, that was the price. Mm -hmm. I, I, there was no justice. There was no, you know, it, it was either, you know, uh, stick with the program or leave and just like start over with absolutely nothing. And I remember casting out, I mean, not casting out, but, um, People who were casted out, like someone had sex before marriage, uh, and yeah. were just like, "Oh no, our brother! You know, he's gone. He's just dead to us." You know, and uh, until we got older and we could come back and talk about it, but you know, it's it was, and it's really traumatizing for those people, um, especially people who grew up uh, in the church when their parents joined. Uh, you know, later just discussing with them online, I just learned how traumatizing that was for their parents and their adults to be like you guys aren't special like you guys are almost there but you know you, you get second place next to these to the blessed children as they called us so um yeah i i don't know i i, I think when i was in it i just i don't know I, I luckily i had my older brothers who were they were a little more critical and i think again they were a little closer to the fire um yeah. uh, having grown up in it more and i think over the years the church kind of kept a lower and lower profile so they didn't as openly do things or like, uh, I think they tried to protect their PR a little more, but. Okay. okay. So speaking about PR, and then I want to have some other questions I'd love to be able to ask you, but you mentioned AR-15, right? If people go online and they look at some of these photos of people holding weapons uh, in these um, services, it is, it's jarring to the eye. Uh, and I'm wondering if you can describe this splinter group and what that's about and why is it that there are weapons involved in this group to this degree and in such a visible way? Sure. Um, so the gun thing has happened actually in the Unification Church uh, before Sean Moon took over. Um, I think it's a few things. Uh, so I believe Sun and Moon's, my dad told me his first company was a gun company uh, via Tongil Group. Tongil mean, means unity in uh, Korean. So yeah, he actually, uh, he has a quote and I, I can read it off in a minute, but um, so he had an obsession with guns and so his family did. And then I think when Sean Moon, uh, when he was rivaling his mom, uh, 
Hakchahan uh, Moon with like, who's the real Unification Church? You know, who who gets the crown now after Sun and Moon died? I, to me, it feels like him gearing up with these guns and, and giving this kind of warlike presence is, it, it, I think it's partly that. It's like, if you come after me, well, we've got guns. So like, don't mess with me. We're the real Unification Church. You guys are the imposters. But um, if I could read, uh, let's see. So it's it's from a speech in 1969. Um, this is from tparents.org, which is this uh, record of a bunch of uh, Unification Church speeches um, maintained by this one. I don't know if he's still a member, but anyway. Uh, but so so these are some excerpts. This isn't in order, but just each sentence is, is from the, that talk, which is a lot longer because the cult leader gave the speech. So um, so Sunan Moon said. Uh, all unificationists must take an interest in guns. Now that I am doing business with guns while on earth, we absolutely need them to create a defensive fence to shield ourselves from satanic world attacks. This year, we also sent 500 guns to the United States. Yet our missionaries there, Bang Chun Che and Young Eun Kim, objected and asked me to please not send the guns. I said, what do you mean? Please, what do you mean, please don't send them? If you don't do it, I will do it, even if it means going there myself. Please just do as I ask. If I tell them that we sent 15,000 guns to Japan, members in the United States would say, oh my. If I told them that we had sold 50,000 or 100,000 guns in Japan, the American members would feel compelled to sell even more than that. I went around the United States and investigated. America is a golden market. It is virgin soil. There are unlimited resources there, which is why it is possible to sell more than these numbers. So if you think about the whole gun problem and that there's this church that just gets truckloads of free money from these members who just give everything to it. Right. I mean, I remember my friends, like some of them were like the children of some of the Korean leaders who had like higher positions. Mm -hmm. And some of them were saying like, man, my parents or my aunt who's in the church, they're, they're dealing with guns now. I don't know. They're like selling them. And it's kind of crazy. (laughs) Like they were like, I guess that's just what they do now. And that was like back in the late nineties, early two thousands. So they're in on this gun thing and they give money to the NRA. They're in bed with the far right. That's, you know, that's why I talk about this stuff. Yeah. I wrote down this phrase, shield from satanic world attack. Mm-hmm. What was the vision there that that uh, Satan was going to be coming and attacking or Satan's army or what, you know, it's different in different groups. So what was the visual on that? It's just is narcissism is the real answer, but um, it's just yeah I don't know. Okay, so yeah. it's just like a paranoid thought, and we have to protect ourselves. Got it. Yeah, and actually, you know, uh, Sun Myung Moon he grew up in Imperial Japan, right? Like when Imperial Japan was taking over Korea, he tried to fight against them, mm-hmm. and um, I think he was actually imprisoned by them and tortured, and you know he was traumatized. So I think uh, yeah. I, that probably added to, it was after that, that he became this like hardcore missionary as to save the world. Um, he just put it into fifth gear, you know? So uh, he put these elements together and him growing up and again, what is now North Korea and acting very similarly to the, um, the Kim, Kim family. Um, I, when we, when me and my friends online who grew up in the church, like see these like North Korean, like ceremonies or like meetings or stuff, we're like, wow, this is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think it, you know, I think also I, I heard this one uh, Korean artist or Korean American artist, uh, David Cho, talk about it. 
he talked about how um, in Korea, like for, for decades, a lot of people invaded, a lot of other countries invaded, and Korea has always had to be kind of defensive. And like, it's like everyone's trying to take something from us, you know. So I think as a country, they, they, they feel they have to like, you know, gear up and empower themselves and, you know, just try and get their name out there and rise in like in status. So uh, I, rem- I remember hearing that and thinking, oh, maybe that has to do with this whole church thing, too. Yeah. When you also talk about all of this kind of paranoid thinking, what people get frustrated by, and maybe you can tell me if this has been true for you, what people get frustrated by is that when they leave, and it's similar to leaving a family system where, let's say, you had parents who were scared of something in particular, and they infuse that into you, that you can leave it, but it doesn't necessarily leave you. You have to work on having it leave you. And so I, I think especially that as I've talked about here on the podcast before about when a teaching is given to you, but it, it uh, is laced with fear, it has kind of more sticking power because you get into the what ifs, what if they're right about this? And, you know, maybe I do have to worry and I have to keep myself in line. So I'm just wondering about that. Is that something that you have been needing to kind of exorcise to a certain degree to get out of you? Um, Because that would be very typical if that were the case. Uh, Yeah, totally. Um, You know, in, again, in researching cults and the psychology of it and everything, uh, just, you know, the second generation of of a cult, um, you grow up with this as your primary primary reality. Mm -hmm. So having to see the world as home uh, for the first time, it's, it is, it's difficult. It's not second nature to me. Like I see, uh, uh, other people who just interact with the world and like the world's made for them. And we have these choices and, you know, um, whereas I'm always super calculated about my choices and, you know, I, it takes a little more warming up for me to be sold on certain ideas or certain social groups or whatnot. So, mm-hmm. you know, my quick out is, uh, I just find the other weirdos or people who grew up in unusual circumstances. Um, People whose parents weren't, you know, like they weren't quite in this, like, uh, like mainstream. they're not connected. Yeah. 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 Just right. The relationship had some things, you know, because my parents, it was, it was almost like they had to choose between the moons and their kids. And, mm-hmm. you know, if they served the moons first, then their kids would be taken care of. So there's that, you know, which is, leaves a lot of room for distortion. So, um, like, like I go to group therapy, actually, I go to ex cult group therapy and, um, which is awesome. I love it. Uh, and you know, it it was great to be able to talk about like, Oh, you know, the, the moon family kids are, they used to go around town and, you know, they could, they got violent sometimes and everyone's like, (gasps) like gasping. And I was like, Whoa, I guess it really was that bad. Like emotionally it didn't, never registered as something that was that extreme, but just to hear people be like, wow, you, you grew up under this predatory family was, it was healing to hear that, you know, and it's just like, you know, this is the place where we talk about it. I mean, I brought it up in the past and people are like, oh, that's messed up anyway, you know, but in a therapeutic environment, it's just like, you're there to like try and help, you know, fix that. But, uh, you know, I just accept that, um, in the way I see cults is like, it's almost like you grew up on a certain drug. Like you, you grew up being showered with certain things that came automatically just by association. 
Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in the real world, you have to work for those things like relationships and, you know, primarily and other things. So, you know, I'm just always, it's, it's never, I'm always going to be kind of have somewhat of a state of withdrawal. Like it's always going to be like, I can't get those things as automatically as I used to. Mm-hmm. And that's where I have to, you know, be patient with myself and, um, you know, just put some effort into those things. Um, and if I guys just to say one more thing about that, uh, it was interesting to learn that there's actually, you know, it's a physical thing that happens in your brain too. Like I read an article about how um, extreme fundamentalists have like lesions in their prefrontal cortex uh, because that's the part of the brain that um, helps you with identity and survival and decision-making. I believe, I don't know, maybe you know more about this than I do, but um, you know, I was like, oh wow, there's actually like a physical thing that you have to exercise. Like, and that, it, it just made it more real and it validated it a lot more. So that was, that was interesting to learn. So there is something very important about getting that validation that there, that you have been through something that has been transformational uh, uh, neurologically. It's been transformational physiologically and emotionally, spiritually on every different level. And so I think that that is something that can give it some credence. Like, you know, I'm not just the, I'm not just sort of in this world and trying to make my way and dealing with this normal kind of, you know, nervousness about this and about that. There is something that was a shift that took place inside of you that doesn't mean necessarily, I think, that, that there's always gonna be sort of permanent damage or permanent change but that you have to work, like you're saying, you have to work to transform yourself into a, a person who can make connections between people and can feel a part of a community and can realize that, that you don't have to be as nervous as you might feel that you need to be in order to be prepared for something that's probably never going to happen. And so it does take making yourself aware of it and then being able to say, okay, I really do need to actually see that my life is safe, maybe even safer now, that I can make connections between people and find a common ground, not just by virtue of the fact that we all live in Terrytown together and we all believe the same way, but on, on other levels. And, um, but yeah, there's this Insta community and Insta connection that people don't necessarily get. Um, in fact, it's very much about, you know, kids get it, you know, kids will go to um, preschool, kindergarten, first grade, and suddenly everyone's their friend. Oh, look, I have 10 new friends. What? Like adults don't do that. You know that. So I think that there are moments in our lives at different ages where we have the benefit of just suddenly having this connection. And so that's why it's so great that you go to a group. And that's why it's also great that you do what you do in a lot of different forums in the world. And even with stand up and all of that, you're going to make other connections on and other bases. And so is there something now that you feel you want people to be able to recognize about you um, that you have certain um, like the, the qualities that make you you or your sense of humor or that you've survived something or what would be important to have people recognize in you, even though I think you probably don't want all that attention on you, um, but not, not just the Oh, we all believe the same way. So I'm, I'm then of equal value to you. But what else do you want people to know about you? Um, 
Well, yeah, I think uh, part of this uh, going into my past and everything uh, was just realizing that it's all—it's never going to just disappear, and I'm never going to become a completely new person. I'll evolve, but that's always going to be there. So, like, mm-hmm. how can I rebrand it so I can kind of claim it? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, because this is the most real to me, and you know, if you're an artist, then you know that when you get personal, when you, you know, there's like that movie Sleepwalk with me about um, Mike Birbiglia, and he talks about his breakthrough moment was just talking about what he thinks about all the time, and you know, the the things that are real in his life, like mundane moments and all that. And so, right. I do. I yeah, this is just part of me, and like, if you want the real Teddy, this this comes with it. This cult story. So, um, I'm just trying to, yeah, turn it into art and just like writing and um you know a lot of stand-up comics talk about their childhood and so I'm like well have I got one for you you know like so yeah I just I'm trying to like I guess yeah as an artist just show who I am but I think another uh challenge there is that I've read before in a few places that it's like cults uh they don't they don't care about who you are they only care about what you do and so I need to keep that in mind and sometimes chill out and stop trying to prove myself all the time and like, you know, put all my worth into the things that I do. That's really hard um, because I'm also an artist. So you do have to prove yourself as an artist. And so, um, yeah, right. I, I just, uh, my hope is that by putting my story out there or our stories, you know, that the world becomes a little bit more informed about this life and about people and cults in general that it's not this taboo subject that we keep locked in a shelf of like, oh yeah, cults, oh yeah, whatever. Like that's a life that I don't, I can't relate to. And I'm like, no, you can relate to. Let me show you how, like, you know, have you been in a situation like this with dating or with a friendship or someone who took advantage of you or something like that? It's like, just because it's the cult doesn't mean those relatable elements aren't there. So that's what I'm hoping ultimately is that um, people who grew up in cults and whatnot, our stories get out there because exposure is how cults, I think, dissolve. Um, they want to be all secret and special. And we're just saying, no, you're not. You're just on the same map of human psychology as everyone else. So that's my hope. Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful hope. And I love your idea about sort of your value because um, I have talked to a lot of people about this sort of shifting their way of looking at things because when raised in a cult or in a, in a controlled situation, or in an abusive relationship, your worth is not just based upon your value to somebody else Mm -hmm. and what you're willing to do to sacrifice and how much you can become an empty vessel that then they can fill with whatever it is that they want you to believe and to think like and behave like. But that just by virtue of you being wired a certain way or having a conscience or being interested in certain things, that's part of who you are, having nothing to do with anybody else. But it sounds like you naturally have as part of you the the want to educate and the want to um, send out a message of um, kind of um, generality, like this is something that happens and it can happen in different formats and in different times in our lives, but we're all susceptible. And so I think from, from the talks that you give, probably you've also figured out in your own life what to watch out for. And there's probably some environments that you're going to be ultra sensitive to, uh, certain kinds of personalities you're going to be sensitive to. And I'm wondering 
just about that, if you find that you walk into a space and you go, oh, no, 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 this is not okay, or just certain certain characteristics in other people. So what about that? Yeah, I have this joke uh, <laughs> in my stand-up routine where I'm, I talk about like Dr. Bronner's soaps and how it has all this like <laughs> scripture on it and everything. And yeah. my whole joke is that. Uh, well, I don't want to spoil it, but whatever. It's not <laughs> no, you don't have to. You have to tell. You don't have to give your material. It's okay. It's yeah. okay. Yeah, go ahead. But, yeah, I just like. Well, like one of my lines in it is like a lot of people think that cults are um, like you can spot one from a mile away. Like, uh, like you'll be walking down the street and someone comes comes up to you like, "Greetings, mortal! For I am Kultar. Join me in my suicide orgy." as we print our scriptures onto the labels of liquid soap products. <laughs> and I'm like, was Dr. Bronner a real doctor? <laughs> right, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. About we those don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Could have been like Dr. Pepper. We just don't know, right? Another brand, <laughs> yeah. right. Dr. Pepper Mints, because that's what yeah. his soaps are. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. exactly. No, I, I don't want to, I'll also put in a disclaimer. <laughs> like, I'm, not doc, I'm not knocking his product it's probably great but the scripture <laughs> thing did eke me out it yeah. did trigger me i was like uh well okay this guy sounds like a church member trying to sell one of our products okay mm-hmm. nope anyway <laughs> but you know i think it i think it's whatever it is what it is <laughs> yeah right i think just to finish up also just in terms of now being at, be able, like kind of be in the world and being able to question things and being able to um, find out what it means to you and being able to say no to things. And, you know, do you still have a, have a kind of a reticence to, um, saying no to disagree, to question, or is that something that you've been able to get more comfortable with? Yeah. It's like the pendulum swings hard. Um, I don't want to call myself a skeptic because like, I think that's kind of get lonely and you can dry up real quick. Cause like, if you don't believe anything, but um, yeah, no, it, it does make me more questioning. Um, like, you know, when I see comments on social media of how, oh, this this person is so enlightening and da da da, and like, I'm I'm always like, did he have any evidence? Yeah, <laughs> did he have any research to back up what he's saying? Like, I'm very like, yeah, hard pressed about that. Um, yeah, and you know, you get these like MLMs like Lululemon, which is like I think it's called like Lula. Uh, row or something now um there there was a vice like mini documentary about it um yeah no i'm very keen to like stuff like that um but again yeah i try not to like just be the guy who's always like no to everything you know um but yeah definitely that that that's there for sure the hesitation right i think just to be able to finish up um i do think that this is always a timely message because there will always be Groups like this, there will always be people who start multi-level marketing groups. There are people who who will start their own quote-unquote religions, um, either trying to make a buck or just trying to have their um, ego needs met or whatever else, or because they really truly believe that they speak for God or some six thousand-year-old warrior that they're channeling or whatever it is. It's just that is always going to be part of our culture, I think. Uh, and so the the best I think that we can do in our work here is to help people know what to watch out for. Right. So sometimes you don't know because they keep it well hidden, you know, that the the warning signs are, are kind of well hidden, but as soon as you notice them to know, ah, that's what that means. And I need, I need to avoid it. 
Um, so I'm sure you have your antenna up now. And you're right. I think the pendulum does swing to this other extreme. And that's actually a good thing because then you want to know that you can protect yourself. Then it might be that it's a little too much and you don't need that anymore, but you at least hadn't had the opportunity to see that given the opportunity, you can ask your questions and you can say no. And you might say no before you say yes, just because you can say no, because you're allowed to. Um, and then you find somewhere in the middle that feels more realistic and that feels more based upon the evidence around you, you know, uh, and not just exercising your freedom. Um, is there anything else though that you wanted the listeners or the watchers to know about you or where to find some of the, the work that you're doing or shows that you're doing, any way to connect with you? Sure. Um, yeah, I got another uh, mini doc coming up. It's non-disclosure, so I guess I can't say anything about that. But um, yeah, I'm excited about that. And uh, well, yeah, usually what I say to, to wrap up here, <laughs> I've done like a few of these interviews now, and sometimes I'm sure. afraid I'm becoming redundant. But no, it's good to like talk about this. Yeah. Uh, but I, you know, sometimes church members or people who are like over the church will be like, oh, why does this guy still keep talking about this? Why is he so negative? What He needs to get over it and whatever. And I'm like, well, I mean, I think I talked about it a lot in this interview. It's like, well, the effects of, of the church and like groups like it, it's happening now. I mean, it's in the mass shootings. It's in just people who are, you know, believing and reciting things that just aren't true. And, um, it's it's the fact that you know come on like trump removed the term evidence based like are you are you freaking kidding me that is fascism right there um we we need to like get grounded as a society and uh you know th this is just one example of this church that was brewing this kind of thinking um of just not connected to the real world i mean of course there were beautiful moments of community and mm -hmm. you know loving each other and that's that's what makes it hard for me to like be able to just dismiss it as like, well, that's, that's all done. And I don't believe that anymore. It's like, no, my childhood, my sense of family will always be in that little box of this the unification church. And, you know, when I have dreams about my house in Terrytown, I woke up, wake up feeling very emotional and kind of sad. And, um, but you know, it's, it's just, it's not worth just, you know, all the hocus pocus, like, um, it, it's still happening is what I'm saying. Uh, the church was very much a uh, um, political organization. It's, it's trying to spread its uh, message to the rest of the world, but really it's like the moon family trying to gain power. And um, I think they're not aware of that. Like they think they're doing a good thing, you know? So, and again, with, with how they grew up, I can't totally blame them. I would think I was this miracle superhuman as well if I grew up in that family with full-grown adults bowing to me since I was a baby. But, um, you know, I'm just saying, like, it has effects and you have to be aware of those effects, you know. Uh, if someone gives a good speech one day, that's not enough. That's not enough to just get on that horse and, like, go to get on that bandwagon, you know. You you need to separate the emotional sensationalism and everything and just get down to like the, you know, the roots or the, the effects and results. So there's my rant about that. Okay. So. It's a good one. It's a good rant. Hang on to it because I, I, I think that there is something so powerful about a couple of things that you mentioned. One is having this sense of missing and loss and withdrawal, as you talked about 
before that, yeah, you can miss a lot of the things that really felt in a multi-sensory way, just really nice. And sure, and it and it should have been able to continue had it not kind of things morphed into something that was really very unhealthy or maybe un there was an undercurrent always of it being unhealthy that you just didn't quite feel a lot of the time. And so a lot of people miss what it was to them to a certain degree or what it was supposed to be. Um, and so that is very, that is very normal and very natural. And yes, it is still happening. And so why do people keep talking about it and why should they? I think you just keep talking about things in the hope that it, it educates people in the hope that it gives people a sense of what to watch out for. Like, why should we keep talking about slavery? Well, because there still is human trafficking. There's still a slavery in some countries and here and yeah, well, let's keep talking about it. Uh, but also what's true is that when people might say that to you, like, why do you keep talking about this? This is not the only thing you talk about, I'm sure. <laughs> and so, right, this is just, you're talking to me and you're talking to other people about this, but you have a whole host of other things that you talk about. But um, I think when people are saying, why do you keep talking about it? It's, it's not even so much a statement about you, it's a statement about them, that they're uncomfortable with it or they don't know how to respond to it. Uh, or it's not important to them, so they don't want you to talk about it. Um, and so sometimes you want to consider the the messenger rather than the message um, and how you respond to that. Okay, so I am very happy that we had this time uh, to be able to kind of hear your story, hear your wisdom on what you what you went through, what you naturally are struggling with now and coming to greater understanding about. Um, but I think also being able to help people see that just because they haven't heard of a group um, existing or they haven't heard the name of that group doesn't mean it doesn't exist anymore and that it is true. I come across a lot of this where People will say, have you heard of such and such group? And I'll say, I, I might not have heard the name. Can you tell me a little bit about it? And then I can see that it's an offshoot of this or offshoot of that. And so they sometimes have these tentacles that go out into the world. And it's good to keep track, especially when there's uh, major weaponry involved, which is really unsettling. Um, okay. All right. Well, thank you, Teddy. It was great to talk to you. And I, I hope that that we can speak again and you know I can catch up with you and see down the road also how things are going for you. Sure, I would love to. And I always really appreciate um, these opportunities and the work that you and other people have podcasts and who just like write and talk about this stuff. Uh, it's great. It's just, well, one thing I'm really happy about is that like, you know, cults used to be a pop culture joke, you know, but now it's like, no, there's real people involved. And these are stories of heartbreak. It's it's not this one-off thing. Like this is real and it happens to people and it stays with them the rest of their lives. So yes, well said. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. One more thing before you go. In part one of Teddy's interview, we had talked about being raised in the Unification Church and around Reverend Moon's family, and also how he was groomed to protect the Moon family above all others, and also how the world outside was considered enemy camp. And now, with part two of my interview with Teddy, we go on to talk about 
what has happened within the Unification Church and also that now there are semi-automatic weapons that are incorporated into church services that are part of the offshoots that have been created by some of Reverend Moon's family. And it's a very disturbing image. You can go online and check them out. And people hold weapons as a symbolic gesture, and hopefully it will remain symbolic to shield them from what they call is the satanic world and the satanic world attacks. So I think having semi-automatic weapons as part of a church service is a recipe for disaster. But for some people, they feel it makes it kind of more of a safe sanctuary. It remains to be seen. So Teddy also talked about a letter that went out to the congregation when he was growing up when one of Reverend Moon's sons, young Jin Moon, fell from the 17th floor of a hotel in Nevada at the age of 21. The police ruled it a suicide. It was portrayed, though, as the fault of the members. I haven't seen this letter that went out and don't know what it said, but I do know that around the time of Young Jin's death, Reverend Moon was also finding a way to turn things around and calling his son's death, quote-unquote, providential, something that was to be seen as a self-sacrificial offering to God, I guess. So this is not something that happens just in groups like this. There's a lot of reversal of logic and victim blaming and reframing and the use of sometimes creative and purposely misleading terminology and language to convey certain messages and feelings. And it happens when an organization is run by a person who's unwilling to take any blame for something that happened. So they are trying to get people around them to take the responsibility instead and whether or not they take it, they're given it. In fact, there was a church recently where the leadership sent out what they called an apology letter to the congregation because the leaders had been involved in being quite abusive and sexually inappropriate with underage and overage people. And some people in the congregation showed me this letter, and they said that they felt it was really very kind and good and sufficient, and it was appreciated. But one person brought the letter to me and said that he thought something was missing from this apology letter. So I read it, and I realized what was missing. There was no apology in it. There was a request for the congregation to forgive the leader, so it was incumbent upon the followers to do the right thing and to absolve the leader and really to get the leadership off the hook and not be held accountable. But there was also a bit of blame given that was leveled on the community itself, the church itself, that it had somehow come to be a place where that sort of behavior had become the norm and was tolerated. So the leader really didn't have a clear sense anymore about what was right and what was wrong. And so the church, the environment, the history, everyone else, everything else was to blame. So if you have the gift of gab while you are seemingly acknowledging what you've done, and you're able to be manipulative in your presentation and only seemingly contrite, and you know you're also speaking to people who've been conditioned to feel wrong blaming the leader for anything, who've been conditioned to take responsibility for anything going wrong, and who've been trained to feel responsible to forgive and sometimes forget, 
then the leader can very cleverly send an apology letter that has no apology in it, and very few people will notice. And even though I try not to take sides politically on the show, I would be absolutely remiss in not mentioning all of the killings and shootings that have taken place just this past week in the United States alone that, unfortunately, our leadership has blamed on so many other things, including mentally ill monsters. That's a quote from President Trump. And it's also taken the place of any talk about gun control. Even though people with mental illness are usually the victims of violent crimes and not the perpetrators. Always important to remember. I had an image of our country on fire and we called the fire department to come put the fire out. And I imagined things playing out the way it feels like it's playing out in our country. And so, instead of the fire department coming to put out the fire, they just started arguing with us on the phone, saying things like, are you sure it's a fire? I don't know if I would really call it a fire. How hot is it? Can you take the temperature and see if it's really a fire? How would you know? And where are you from? I hear an accent. No, I mean, where are you from originally? And do the people from your country have a history of setting fires? I mean, do I need to take responsibility for this, or do you? And also, are you gay or trans, Democrat, Republican, Muslim? Do you have a mental illness? Also, where do you live? Oh, you live there. Well, you probably should have thought about living there before you moved, before you bought a home, because it's in a fire-prone area. And also, did you check all the wiring in your house before you left for work that day? Because, you know, again, this could be on you. And we can't really help you if you can't control what happens in your own neighborhood and in your own home. And also, if we put out too many fires too quickly, then we'll be out of a job. And then what would we do? So... I'm sure you all understand that this is just a metaphor and firefighters would never do these things and they are heroes. But it really is about conjuring an image that we are in imminent danger at times and those who should be protecting us are really just engaging us in a war of words instead and also confusing thoughts that take the place of action. I think it's all intentionally disorienting and a shifting of responsibility, a redirection of focus, and what I see as a purposeful misdiagnosis of the problem and who the culprit is so that those in a position of leadership, those who are supposed to protect us, well, they can create these kind of lateral and figurative smoke screens in the hope that it leaves us without a clear vision of the real issue and leaves them without having to do anything to fix the problem and prevent future problems. We live in a world now, and I think to a great degree maybe always have, where we have to work hard to keep our eyes directly focused on the truth, no matter how much the people around us deflect, blame, redirect, set random social and political fires, throw something shiny over there in the opposite direction to get our attention away from where it should be. Or they throw a spectacular tantrum until we back down from making a request to have things change. Or they offer what just feels like an apology. It's a waste of our time. It makes sure problems aren't solved by creating 
all of these other things for us to be thinking about and arguing about and keeps us from moving forward with clarity and making the progress we need to. It's insulting. It's all a diversion and a distraction. And it's important to know that manipulation of every kind in every situation is just noise we need to work harder to tune out. Talk to you next week. Indoctrination is available for download on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. Subscribers receive bonus episodes, interviews, and other cool goodies. Send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support. And if you can't become a paid subscriber, I will be so grateful for any and all support that you show. Whether it's subscribing on SoundCloud, YouTube, or Patreon, or giving us a like on our Indoctrination Facebook page, or following our Twitter and Reddit feeds. Thank you for keeping up with us and for keeping the show going. Until next time, Rachel. Rachel.